from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, June 25th. I'm Marco Werman. First day on the job for Egypt's new president. His Islamist background has some Egyptians worried about what's in store for their country. This is the two big examples, Afghanistan and Iran. And then Egypt would be a new Iran. Also, Mexico's presidential vote is less than a week away, plus a Korean take on jazz. I think what jazz is, for me, it's not American music, it's international music. It brings you to the world that you never exposed before. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, Mondays at 8 p.m., 7 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mohamed Morsi didn't waste any time. Egypt's new president has already moved into the office, once occupied by Hosni Mubarak. What Morsi can do as president is another matter. His post has been stripped of many of its powers by Egypt's military. Morsi was the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate, and many in Egypt are worried that the Brotherhood will want to impose conservative Islamic rules on society. Shahira Amin was a senior anchor at Egypt's state-owned Nile TV. She quit during the revolution to protest how state TV was portraying the protests. Amin says she did not vote for Morsi, but she's offering the new Egyptian leader her support, despite some concerns. As a secularist myself, I am very concerned about a conservative Islamist as president. I know that Morsi has tried to allay our concerns He said that he will end his affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood, and he's promised to be a president for all Egyptians, Muslims and Christians. Uh, He's promised to protect minority rights and the rights of women. But we've seen members of the Brotherhood renege on their promises. They tried to have a monopoly over the drafting of the Constitution, and they said they won't field a candidate for the presidency. What we've seen from the Islamist parliament over the year and a half justifies our concerns. They want laws giving women the right to divorce scrapped. They want to bring down uh, the marriage age of girls to 12. They want to bring back the harmful practice of female genital mutilation. So, of course, all that worries me. Right. Well, Uh, that's what I was going to precisely say. I mean, do you really think Morsi's uh, vows for unity in Egypt really includes women? I really want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think that he should be given a chance because the more we marginalize the Islamists, the more we radicalize them. I'm hoping that by integrating them into the mainstream, we'll allow them to reform, to become more moderate. And I I think they won't be focusing on trivial issues like uh, women and, and the headscarf but they will really concentrate on the nitty-gritty. You've met Morsi. You've been in meetings with him. What's his management style, and does it give you any indication of how things might progress? I'm not too impressed with Morsi, the man himself, because I see him as colorless, but 
at least his promises of being the president for all Egyptians and for ending his affiliation with the Brotherhood gives me hope that he will try to uh, fulfill the goals of the revolution, none of which have been fulfilled in the past year and a half in the transitional period. In fact, the military council has made a total mess of the transitional period. My big concern is that his hands will be tied and that they will try to continue pulling the strings. They want to shield their budget from scrutiny. They don't want to be held accountable. They say they will uh, reintroduce martial law and uh, uh, they want control over the drafting of the new constitution. So all that worries me. So I think that their plan is to create chaos for him, to try and bring him down, basically. You took a big risk, uh, Sheher Amin, when you, you resigned from Nile TV over their coverage, what you felt was disappointing coverage of the uprising last year uh, at Tahrir Square. Having taken such a bold position, how do you feel right now getting a result from these presidential elections that really is not the best you could have hoped for? I didn't vote. I inv- invalidated my vote because uh, I wasn't convinced by either candidate. But, um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, Morsi will fulfill his promises. And from today, I join the opposition camp. Uh, I will hold him accountable, and I will be watching very closely. We shall have to wait and see right now. We shall give him the benefit of the doubt. Shahira Amin, speaking with us from Cairo. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. Shahira Amin was a senior anchor at Egypt's state-owned Nile TV until she quit during last year's revolution. She joined us from Cairo. The election of an Islamist president has many Egyptians wondering what comes next. Women, as we just heard, are concerned. Then there are those who make a living selling alcohol. They also have some worries, since drinking and selling alcohol is forbidden by Islam. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. On a recent night in a swanky part of town, a college-aged kid in designer jeans and a black T-shirt throws down the cover charge of 200 Egyptian pounds, about 33 bucks, and walks into a packed nightclub. To most American youth, the scene would be unremarkable, smoking, dancing, and lots of drinking. But to the vast majority of Egyptians, this behavior would be utterly unfamiliar and likely immoral. On the dance floor, I ask a young woman named Mena if she thinks President Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood will try to shut down places like this. On the long run, yes. Maybe not these years, maybe not these five years or something, but on the long run, yes. That's definitely. Are you worried about it? I won't, I won't be young enough in five years to celebrate and stuff, but yeah, I do worry about it somewhere, in a way. So you're having fun now? Rowie Rizik runs the Amici Bar. He says the alcohol-related industry has been dreading the prospect of Morsi becoming president. Everybody's panicking and crying, you know. The, the first thing that Morsi will do, he will close the company that produced uh, Egyptian alcohol. The Al-Ahram Beverage Company produces beer, wine, and liquor. Once that's shut down, Egypt's new president will start closing the bars, Rizik says, just like two other countries where political Islam took hold. This is the two big examples, Afghanistan and Iran. 
As a leader in the Muslim Brotherhood, it's not hard to guess how Mohamed Morsi feels about alcohol. But as a presidential candidate, he hasn't talked much about the issue. Some Egyptians in the booze business see that as a sign they have nothing to worry about. The Arabesque Bar and Restaurant is just a couple of blocks from Tahrir Square. It's got antique floor tiles and paintings of belly dancers. The place has been open for 35 years, but business has been slow since the start of the revolution, says the manager, who gives his name as Mohsen. Whenever there are demonstrations in the square, he says, customers are scarce. He says the new president, even if he is an Islamist, will not be able to close down bars or restaurants that sell alcohol, even if he wants to. It would hurt the tourism industry, he says, and too many Egyptians depend on tourism-related business to make their living. It's probably not going to happen, he says. At least it's not on the agenda in the near term, says Gihad Khalid. She's a sociology student at a university in Cairo and a former member of the Muslim Brotherhood herself. I'm not sure what they'll do, Khalid says, but the Muslim Brotherhood has other things to worry about. They're not going to make banning alcohol a priority. As for her own beliefs, Khalid says Christians in Egypt should be allowed to drink because their religion doesn't forbid it. But what about Muslims who want to do so, I ask. It makes me sad, Khalid says, to think about Muslims falling out of touch with their religion and doing something that's forbidden. But maybe, she says, they should also have the freedom to make choices of their own. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Cairo. Egyptians aren't the only ones wondering what a new Islamist government will mean for their future. The United States also has a lot at stake in Egypt. Nicholas Burns served as U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008. He says Egypt's election results pose a daunting dilemma for President Obama. We have real interests at stake in Egypt. Obviously, Egypt's the keystone country of the Middle East. It's the largest country. It's the most important one. It's the political and cultural trendsetter. For the U.S., as you know, the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt that Jimmy Carter negotiated in March 1979, that's the fundamental bedrock of American policy in the Middle East. Egypt's been important under Mubarak as a supporter in blocking the Iranian government, and Egypt's been a supporter in countering terrorism. So what the administration has to calculate is whether or not it believes that this new government led by Mohamed Morsi will in effect continue those policies on Iran, on terrorism, and especially on Israel that have been so important to the United States. If it believes, if, if Washington believes that this new government will not do so, then of course you might see Washington tack back towards implicit support for the military government. These are very important concrete interests. The risk, however, is that if we are seen to be not fully supporting democracy, That's going to have a major and negative impact on the United States throughout the Arab world. And I think among many in the developing world who question whether the United States will, in fact, support democracy in a place where we've traditionally had a relationship with authoritarian rulers. How much leverage does the U.S. have with with the Egyptian military? I mean, is the Pentagon on the phone with the Supreme Command of the Armed Forces in Egypt every day? The U.S. has quite a lot of influence. You know, there's a 30-year relationship here. What that means is that the United States has been by far the major supporter in budgetary terms of the Egyptian military over the last uh, 
three decades. We have sold Egypt and the military, advanced uh, military technology, which is very important to them. And I think even more importantly, we now have a generation or two of Egyptian military leaders who have attended American staff colleges, who've done military training in the United States, who have close personal relations with with senior American military officers. So the influence is not universal, but there is a great deal of American influence from the Pentagon. In terms of democracy, though, Nick Burns, it doesn't seem like the military relationship with the U.S., this deep relationship, as you've described it, has really paid off. I mean, what has the U.S. gotten from it? Well, you're right, Marco. Over the last 18 months, we've seen American non-governmental organizations who were there doing the Lord's work, doing work on democratization and electoral freedoms. They were repressed, some of them arrested, some of them now tried by the Egyptian military government. You've seen quite a lot of anti-Americanism from that military government, so it's not at all been an easy road. Do you think uh, Washington is acting differently now, behaving differently now, diplomatically, having learned, you know, the lessons from uh, Algerian elections and from Hamas election victories some years ago? Well, I think so. I think when we and I served in the Bush administration, when the Bush administration effectively repudiated the elections that brought Hamas Hamas to power, it caused a major problem for us because uh, Arabs throughout the Arab world said, well, you say one thing, but you do another. And so the United States has stood up very plainly, led by President Obama over the last year and a half to say that we believe in democracy in the Arab world and we wish to support it. Well, now here is the time when we're going to be tested. Will we support it or not? And I think an early indication was the phone call that President Obama made to Mohamed Morsi. That's an indication that the president has decided that for the time being, he will support this democratic result. Nicholas Burns was the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Marco. You can find more of our ongoing coverage from Egypt, including election photos from Cairo provided by the world's Matthew Bell. That's all at theworld.org. Still ahead, repatriating dinosaur bones on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So it's okay for police in Arizona to check the immigration status of people they detain. A unanimous U.S. Supreme Court said so today. But a divided court also struck down other parts of Arizona's tough immigration law. The split decision means both opponents and supporters of the law can claim some measure of victory. Reporter Peter O'Dowd is at the Fronteras desk of station KJZZ in Phoenix. Peter, what's been the reaction in Arizona? Are both sides celebrating and mourning at the same time? Well, I think you can say the state is celebrating the most. Uh, We have Jam Brewer, the governor of Arizona, calling the Supreme Court's decision of victory, uh, also that it keeps the heart of SB 1070 alive. On the other side of the debate, you have uh, folks in the immigrant community who say it's actually more of a loss than a victory because the provision that we're talking about, the one that was upheld, is the one that everyone was looking towards. And on that case, the, the immigrant community is saying that it's a loss. Right. So that provision is provision 2B, otherwise known as the show me your papers provision. Let's start there. The court voted down three provisions, but it upheld that one. Remind us what it says. 
Well, that provision says that police can check the immigration status of someone that they suspect is not in the United States legally. So let's say you get pulled over on your way to work and you don't have a driver's license uh, and the police officer has a reason to believe that you don't belong here. They can ask for your documentation. And if you don't have it, well, you're going to have to come up with a way to prove that you're here. Right. Proving that you're here legally. I mean, one concern about provision 2B, this uh, show us your papers law, is that it'll lead to racial profiling. Uh, Did the Supreme Court ruling address that? It did in a way. Um, in a sense, uh, one of the justices, uh, Anthony Kennedy, warned against not detaining somebody for too long as you figure this out. And so even the governor in the, the state has said that they are making every effort possible to make sure that racial profiling will not happen. Jan Brewer uh, has said that law enforcement will be held accountable uh, should the statute be misused in a fashion that violates an individual's civil rights. Of course, the immigrant community says those are empty words and until you actually see life on the streets is, you know, it's one, one thing to say that from the governor's office, but another uh, reality on the ground. Now, if you read through some of the reporting, it, it seems that the striking down of the other provisions in SB 1070 could affect what then happens to someone who is found to be lacking legal papers who might be taken in by provision 2B. What about those other provisions might make that happen? Okay, so some of the provisions that were struck down requires all immigrants to obtain or carry immigration registration papers. So you might say, well, what does that mean? If, you, if you're not required to carry those papers, what happens when a police officer pulls you over right. and is demanding to see your papers? Well, conceivably, the way it would work is that that immigrant uh, would have to go find their documentation and actually prove that they're here legally. And for Arizona residents who are unhappy one way or the other about this decision, is there any recourse for them? Well, the ACLU and other civil rights groups are continuing their legal challenge. Uh, This Supreme Court case was ruling just on the injunctions of SB 1070, those four provisions, and not the overall constitutionality of the law. That is something that could still come into play. So the justices said this uh, law is still open to interpretation. If the police, you know, violate civil rights, if they don't do a good job enforcing the law, then in fact they would be open to a legal challenge. Fronteras desk reporter Peter O'Dowd speaking with us from station KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Today's split decision on the Arizona law could make immigration a hot topic again in the U.S. presidential campaign. But immigration is not a top concern for presidential candidates in Mexico. The big issues there, the drug war and whether the Institutional Revolutionary Party or PRI comes back to power. The PRI dominated Mexico under an authoritarian one-party system from 1929 to 2000. It was ousted from power by the conservative National Action Party, or PAN. It's the party of current President Felipe Calderón. In this election, though, it's the PRI candidate, Enrique Peña Nieto, who's leading in the polls. The PAN standard bearer, Josefina Vázquez Mota, is a distant third. And in between them is Andrés Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, as he's widely known in Mexico. AMLO and his party, the leftist Democratic Revolutionary Party, or PRD, narrowly lost the last election six years ago. I know that's a lot of names and acronyms, but we're going to sort it all out. This week, we're going to hear from voters in Mexico who support each of these three major candidates. Reporter Miles Esti in Mexico City begins our series today by introducing us to one AMLO supporter. Juan Pablo Arango Orozco is 33, lives in Mexico City, and works as a freelance government consultant. He falls into the large chunk of middle-of-the-road, left-leaning voters who believe Mexico needs something new. 
En eh, su partido no soy tan simpatizante de él. Eh, en cambio, a mí me parece... I plan to vote for Andrés Manuel López Obrador. His party, I'm not such a big fan of his party. But given the current political context, I think López Obrador is the only candidate that offers a real alternative to the long list of failures we've had before, both when the PRI was in power and then later with the PAN. The PRI already had its chance, and the PAN has had the last 12 years. So it would be fair that the PRD gets an opportunity and that Mexicans can see what this option really represents. Arango is upset about the violence that soared under President Felipe Calderón and hopes his party, the PAN, does not return to power. But he claims he's more worried about a potential return of the PRI. Bajo ese parámetro, yo creo que me daría más miedo que llegue Peña Nieto por la situación de todos los vínculos a los cuales se le... It scares me more to think of Peña Nieto in power because of the connections they say that the PRI has with drug trafficking groups, not to mention their history of repression against groups that oppose the PRI. We're talking about reduced freedom of expression, and that's really frightening. Arango mentions other reasons not to vote for Enrique Peña Nieto. He says he's inexperienced and manipulated by corrupt pre-hierarchy. And even though Peña Nieto is generally leading in the polls, Arango thinks López Obrador can close the gap before July 1st. But he ultimately thinks Peña Nieto will end up winning, because the deck is stacked against AMLO. No lo quieren. Desgraciadamente, la élite de nuestra clase política, él es... They don't want him. The political elite in Mexico don't want him. He's like a Lex Luthor for them, an evil character. Actually, I call him Andrés Manuel Luthor because he's the enemy number one. Maybe that's because in the end he stands for change and shaking up our policies. He wants to redistribute all the wealth that we have in Mexico, and I really do think that Mexico is a rich country. 33-year-old Juan Pablo Rango Rosco speaking about why he plans to vote for Andrés Manuel López Obrador in Mexico's presidential election on July 1st. For The World, I'm Miles Esty in Mexico City. Our series on Mexican voters continues tomorrow. Miles will introduce us to another Mexican voter, this time a supporter of President Calderón's National Action Party. An international case of dinosaur rustling shows up in today's GeoQuiz. The skeleton of a cousin of Tyrannosaurus rex was seized by U.S. officials over the weekend. They suspect that the bones were smuggled out of Mongolia, a country with strict laws protecting its cultural heritage. A desert covering the southern part of Mongolia is a treasure trove for dinosaur bones. This desert is one of Asia's largest, covering just over half a million square miles. Can you name it? We'll talk with a paleontologist about the Mongolian dinosaur bust when we dig up the answer in a few minutes. This is PRI. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Turkey is seen as an example of democracy for the Middle East. But some say the Islamist-dominated government there is showing its authoritarian tendencies. In theory, this is an extremely advanced society. What is most shocking is to see how fast it goes in the wrong direction. 
GRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The election of an Islamist president in Egypt is being hailed as a victory for democracy in the Middle East. But as we heard earlier in the program, there's also concern about how an Islamist government might rule. Many point to Muslim-majority Turkey as an example of a place where an Islamist government is doing things right. The country is stable, prosperous, and democratic. Critics, though, claim Turkey's ruling Islamic Justice and Development Party, also known as the AK Party, has created a climate of repression, silencing opponents by jailing them. From Istanbul, Matthew Brunwasser reports. It came as a shock. The criminal indictment of internationally acclaimed Turkish pianist Fazıl Say for insulting religious values. Sai tweeted verses attributed to the great Persian poet Omar Khayyam a thousand years ago. You say rivers of wine flow in heaven. Is heaven a tavern to you? You say two hours await each believer there. Is heaven a brothel to you? Sai faces up to 18 months in prison, but the charges are perhaps not such a surprise. Coming amidst Turkey's slow-motion avalanche of legal cases against writers, artists, activists, intellectuals, and critics of the ruling AK Party government. If Hayam were to write about the hypocrisy of religious men in today's Turkey, there's a good chance he too would be dragged to court, says Shana Yurdatapan. He should know. Yurdatapan has been a free speech activist for decades, including 12 years in exile. He says freedom of speech is at its lowest point since the AK Party took power 10 years ago. He says Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan uses Turkey's strong economic growth and the AK party's electoral support to justify attacks against critics. They have much confidence. They say that we got 50% votes. Okay, you got 50. There's another 50. That's also 50. Yurda Tapan says Erdogan has gone mad with power, accusing critics of working against Turkey. As a result, fear about speaking about politics in public is growing. How can you say that? Every second person supports us. I can also say every second person does not. But they feel it is their strong at the moment. And unfortunately, the personality of Erdogan, he feels like God. Ojen Shuljin, the vice president of Penn International, says there were high hopes for free speech in Turkey when the AKP first took power. Now, he says, Turkey is among the world's worst defenders. What is most shocking is to see how fast it goes in the wrong direction. In 2007, we had approximately 30 cases of journalists who were prosecuted for political reasons. Now there are more than 100 in jail, he says, plus 200 more journalists and writers awaiting trial. That's more journalists in jail than any other country. But at the same time, Shuljin says, there is still real and open debate in Turkey. That is what makes Turkey both so difficult to really explain and so interesting also. Because in theory, this is an extremely advanced society, socially spoken. They have all the structures in place which should indicate that this should be a fully functioning democracy. While Turkey is no China or Iran, clearly the system still needs work. 
says Emma Sinclair Webb of Human Rights Watch. One major problem is that Turkish law gives public officials more protection from insult than citizens, which is the opposite of how democracy should operate. The state cannot be criticized. That people at the top, people in power, are somehow immune from the dangerous society below them,、uh, and that they can speak as they want and do as they want without a transparency, without an accountability to the population. Anti-terror laws are often used to convict people for non-violent political speech. Sinclair Webb says the courts fail to throw out cases based on flimsy evidence. The principle of legality is so missing in all of these prosecutions. You are basically linking A to B to C to a terrorist organization on the basis of people's social connections, networking, and not on their activities. So terrorism becomes a kind of infectious illness that. If you meet someone with a political involvement, you become infected by their political involvement. The prime minister counters that the journalists are not in jail because of their journalism. Some were accused of aiding terrorists. Others were indicted for participating in a plot to overthrow the government. Critics say that Erdogan's hardening authoritarianism is unlikely to meet resistance from Western governments. In the aftermath of the Arab Spring revolutions, the West needs Turkey to succeed. Or it risks losing the one Middle East success story. The trial of Fazil Sai is scheduled for October 18th. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid a quick visit to Israel today. He moves on to the West Bank and Jordan tomorrow. Putin is visiting the region at a complex moment. The conflict in Syria and the latest round of nuclear talks with Iran have cast Russia as a key mediator in the region, a mediator Israel wants to influence, as Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem. President Putin is stopping in Israel for just a day, but he's getting the royal treatment. Jerusalem's premier hotel, the King David, which hosts visiting heads of state, canceled all of its reservations to make room for Putin and his entourage. Today, the whole hotel is reserved for the president. Yes, of course, the whole hotel. According to Israeli officials, Putin is here with an almost unheard-of entourage of nearly 400 people: military brass, business people, journalists. Tonight at dinner, Israel's president has invited Russian-Israeli singers to serenade Putin. One of Russia's biggest diasporas is here. More than one million Russian speakers live in Israel today, and they've made their mark just about everywhere. This watering hole in Jerusalem plays Russian hits, including an old tongue-in-cheek pop song called "We Want Putin." The bar itself is named after the Russian president. It's called Bar Putin. The name—it's not a political; it's like a, the joke. The waitress Yulia isn't the Russian president's biggest fan, but she's happy he's here for a visit. It's good. Good we be friends, no? To Israel and Russia. President Putin is here just days after Moscow hosted the latest round of talks with Iran, and Israel is keen to know what Russia and Iran have been talking about, says Yaakov Livne, who heads Russian affairs in Israel's foreign ministry. I think part of this dialogue will be、uh, hearing from the Russians. And receiving an update about the talks in、uh, Moscow, we need to read from the same book and、uh, even better from the same page when it comes to Iran. And this is something that we will、uh, try to achieve. Israel and Russia are not altogether on the same page when it comes to Iran. Russia helped Iran build a billion-dollar reactor in Bushehr. It has also worked to soften international sanctions against Iran and Syria. 
At a ceremony today, Israel's president Shimon Peres addressed those very issues. Peres said, I'm confident that Russia, which was hit by fascism, will not allow similar threats. Not an Iranian threat, not Syrian bloodshed. Israel hopes it can sway Russia with some very enticing goodies. Russia is interested in Israeli military aircraft, which is significant. Israel is just one of two countries in the world known to sell arms to Russia. And Russia is also hoping to cash in on some of Israel's newly discovered natural gas in the Mediterranean. But could these possible deals make Russia change its mind on Iran and Syria? We can't delude ourselves into thinking that we are so important that we can in any way change Russian policy uh, toward Iran or toward any important issue. That's Yaakov Roe, a Russia expert at Tel Aviv University. He says sales of military hardware to the Iranians and Syrians are one of the Russians' biggest money makers. No way they'd back down from those deals, he says. And there's another reason the Russians are staying close to Iran and Syria. They want to increase their nuisance value uh, vis-a-vis the West. Their nuisance value? Their nuisance value. That is, uh, that the West shouldn't think that they can uh, influence Iran without Russia or influence Assad without Russia. And uh, therefore, uh, they, they pump in everything they can to Syria and into Iran in order for them to be sure that they're at every negotiating table or any other arrangement that uh, is reached. Uh, why is Russia so interested in being at any negotiating table? For great power. Even if Israel can't convince Russia to reverse course on its interests in Iran and Syria, it's whining and dining the president to do what it can to influence a key pawn in the complex regional chess game. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Now, you'll never guess what U.S. officials seized over the weekend in New York. They grabbed four large wooden crates containing 70-million-year-old dinosaur bones. Scientists say the bones are that of a Tyrannosaurus. Authorities suspect the skeleton was stolen from the Mongolian desert we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz. Mark Norell is a paleontologist at the American Museum of Natural History. He helped bring attention to this case of alleged illegal smuggling. This dinosaur is an animal called Tarbosaurus batar, and it's a very close relative of Tyrannosaurus rex. So it was a large carnivorous form that lived about 68 million years ago. If you think Tyrannosaurus rex, think a smaller, skinnier version, and you've got Tarbosaurus. And Tarbosaurus batar comes from uh, what part of the world? Tarbosaurus batar is only known from the Nemect formation of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. The answer to our geoquiz today, the Gobi Desert. Now, who owns this skeleton? That's the big question here, isn't it? Different sovereign countries around the world have different laws. Mongolia, for a very long time, has had very strict laws in that all fossil specimens that come out of the ground in Mongolia, regardless of where they're found, are the patrimony of the Mongolian people and are property of the Mongolian government. So Mongolia is not taking some extreme approach here. They're just defending uh, their cultural identity, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think when things come on the open market, offshore, whether they're fossils or things like that, no one's going to seize them unless the countries of origin actually step in and make yeah. a complaint. And Mongolia, as a developing country, is only starting to be able to get to that place. It's been dealing with some of its more pressing issues, and it's been able now to actually get involved in some of the things that are being smuggled out of its country. In this particular case, Mark, I understand that you seem to have played something of a dino bone whistleblower. 
Explain why. <laughs> I don't really know about that, but I mean, a number of us and stuff, when we saw this specimen come up for sale, you know, pursued actions in different ways. And my own was that I just wrote an open letter to the community and then distributed it broadly. I know that someone passed it along to the Mongolian government at about the same time that the Mongolian president was issuing a press release about this issue of this specimen coming up for sale. Now, is the Gobi Desert in Mongolia a, a treasure trove of other dinosaur bones, or is it just this one? No, certainly. It's a, one of the great places on Earth to excavate for dinosaurs. I mean, I've excavated out there for the last 23 years, but the difference between you know my excavations and these illicit excavations are that you know mine are done with the complete complicity of the Mongolian Academy of Sciences, mm. and everything that we collect remains property of the Mongolian government and is deposited in museums in Mongolia. Did you know that these four crates of bones were sitting out in Queens? Well, I went actually to the auction preview and saw the specimen before that happened. And I know that, uh, you know, Heritage Galleries, who auctioned the uh, actual specimen, they were, you know, aware of some of the issues, though, that even though the specimen sold at auction, that it was not released to the purchaser, who I have no idea who it was. Mm. But Heritage, you know, said that they would not release it until the legal action had run its course. Finally, how do you get four large crates of dinosaur bones out of Mongolia in the first place without being detected? Well, Mongolia has a very long border with both Russia as well as with China, and it only has a little over two and a half million people, over half of which live in one place. So there's hardly anybody really out there. If we look at some of the other things that have been you know, smuggled, not just from Mongolia, but certainly from the Middle East, Southeast Asia, as far as archaeological remains, I mean, that there is sort of you know, a conspiracy of international smugglers who were able to move large paleontological, large archaeological, and all sorts of different kinds of things around the planet and sometimes go undetected. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Is international looting of these prehistoric dinosaur bones on the rise? Have you noticed any trend? Yes, certainly. Over the last decade or so, a number of my sites in Mongolia have been hit really hard dinosaurs have and fossils in general have become more and more of a collectible and often draw seven figures now at auction or in the underground market so it's because of this that you know that they are monetized in this kind of way that they're a natural attraction for looters just in the same way that archaeological sites are paleontologist mark norell of the american museum of natural history mark gave us the answer to our geoquiz today the gobi desert thank you mark take care Just before we go to the break, I want to tell you about something that caught my eye, another runoff. We've heard about many runoff elections recently, like the one in Egypt where Mohamed Morsi was declared the winner this weekend, or the one in France last month between Hollande and Sarkozy. It's about as fair a way to decide an election where no candidate gets a clear majority after an electoral scrum. You put up the two top contenders and the public votes again. Well, what about a runoff when actual runners hit the finish line at the same time? You'd think that timing technology is sophisticated enough to avoid that scenario, right? No, wrong. U.S. Olympic hopefuls in the 100-meter sprint category, Allison Felix and Jenna Tarmo, came in at exactly the same time at the Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon yesterday. In fact, officials were stumped even after inspecting the finish line photo. Trouble is the two sprinters are competing for the only remaining spot left, so they'll have to decide how to break the tie. It's going to be either an actual runoff or a coin toss. With the Olympics just around the corner, U.S. track and field officials have a real conundrum on their hands. They're worried about injuring the stars in a mad dash showdown. But even if Felix and Tarmo are friends, a coin flip may be a test of how strong that friendship is.
Just ahead, one Korean's love affair with jazz on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Korean jazz pianist Hei Rim Jion dropped by for a visit last week. The 33-year-old took over the grand piano in the Fraser Performance Studio here at WGBH and played a few songs for us. She began with a Korean folk tune called Arirang. Jian plays Arirang straight at first, but then she veers into something else, a bluesy jazz improvisation on the tune. And then Hei Rim Jian takes the song back to Korea. Jian on piano performing her arrangement of a Korean folk song, Arirang. Uh, Korean music seems to uh, get along pretty well with all those blue notes. (laughs) (laughs) No problem with that. Sure. (laughs) Wow, that was beautiful. You've been playing piano since you were four years old and growing up in Seoul. Classical music, I understand, was your first training, but then you got drawn to jazz. What was it about jazz? Was there one kind of eureka moment when you said, I need to move to this sound? Well, I always loved play by ear, even when I take lessons with the classical teachers. I loved, I loved piano lessons. I practiced very hard. I built up my repertoires from Bach to Franz Liszt. I still love it. I still practice. Yet um, there was a moment, I think I was like 17 years old, I heard Oscar Peterson, one of his CDs, and somebody told me there was improvisation. And all that years that I played classical music, I realized myself that I really like to play by ear and like to improvise just sitting on the piano and just playing it. So I found out my passion actually is in jazz. So it was almost like Oscar Peterson gave you permission, gave you the right (laughs) to go back and kind of fool around and do all the stuff that you always wanted to do. Yes. How freeing was that for you? There are a lot of rules as well. As I learn how much the core changes and improvisation allows you to think, you know, core changes, yet more than playing the same tune over and over, 
It's like、um, what Benny Golson wrote in my linear note. It's like you you know go into the woods, but it never looks the same.、Mm. You just experience the same moment, you know, different moment every time. What a great metaphor. Sure.、Uh, a former record producer had this to say about your music. Unlike many of the Asian jazz artists I have heard who strive to showcase the purity of America's classical music, Hay combines her penchant for that music with clear influxes of indigenous sounds from the Far East. What I wanted to ask you,、uh, Hay Rimjian, is why do you think so few Asian jazz players try and fuse their backgrounds with jazz? Well, I think again, I think because of the elements of jazz. What jazz is for me, it's not American music; it's international music. It brings you to the world that you never exposed before. Yet you connect to the world that you already have lived in, and people want to speak the language, new language, and be free. Yet expose and express themselves into their music. So even if they play one same song, everybody will be playing a different arrangement, and that beauty I think attracts a lot of musicians, and especially if they are coming from the background that you always have to play in certain way. Yet they allows you to. You can do whatever you want to do with what you have. What, what this record producer was implying, though, is that you're you're one of the rare people to do this. One of the rare jazz players in Asia to to do this to fuse your background.、Uh, what do you maybe, think? Well, maybe I I think a lot of Asian people are really、um, good at imitating. So maybe he was imposing the、uh, fact that they may try to sound like somebody.、Mm. Yet. I am trying to find myself into this music. Who am I? Who am I in this world? Who am I in this music world? Do you think you're getting closer to answering that question? Who am I in this music world? That answer will be continuing <laughs> <laughs> until the last of my moment of my life. Watch this space. <laughs> hey, Rimjian, thank you so much. It was lovely meeting you. Thank you.、Um, if you wouldn't mind, play us out with、uh, one other song. What, what, what will we hear? I'll play Prague, which is one of my original compositions. This is a place that I admiration for the place that I never been. Okay, thank you. Thank、you
This is Hey Rim Gion's composition, Prague. You can hear her performing it with her band on her new album, Introducing Hey Rim Gion. And at theworld.org, we've got something you won't hear anywhere else. Hey Rim Gion's cover of I Will Always Love You, that song from The Bodyguard made famous by Whitney Houston. I know, I couldn't believe Hey chose to play it, but when you hear how soulful she makes it, you'll be a believer too. The world comes to you from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. See you tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, gatesfoundation.org and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.